Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. John chapter 6, vacation last week. We thank you, church family, for allowing us to go on vacation last week. We had a great time. We crammed a lot in in a few days, but we are glad to be back. I'm thankful for Pastor Andrew for preaching last week from Isaiah chapter 55. We're jumping back into the book of John. John chapter 6, we've been in this chapter for a few weeks. Lord willing, we will finish it uh, this morning. It is Independence Day weekend, 4th of July is tomorrow, and it's this time of year that we honor our nation and we think about the freedoms that we have, and many people, maybe even in this church, have served in the military. Um, Tarina Hill, my secretary's son, Wyatt, who's grown up in this church, he just graduated from high school, he enlisted into the army, he's at basic training in Georgia right now, and so he's going through the early stages of being in the military. But every single person who enters the military, who enlists in the United States Armed Services, has to pledge an oath of allegiance. And here's what the oath of allegiance that these soldiers have to pledge. I, and you put your name in there, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me according to the regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice, so help me God. This is a solemn oath that our soldiers have to take, where they will defend the Constitution, they will fight for our nation, they will support our country, they will obey their commanding officers. They will obey the president, who is the highest executive in the nation, the commander-in-chief. But what if this oath was not required by our soldiers? What if when they enlisted, they stood there and they said something like this, I half-heartedly accept my role as a soldier, and whenever it's convenient, I'll uphold the Constitution if I feel like it. I may or may not obey my commanding officer, depending on the situation or how I feel. I give lip service to my duty to the United States of America, and I will serve faithfully or wholeheartedly or half-heartedly, so help me God or maybe not. Would you have much faith in that Soldier, would you have faith in our United States military if we took that type of attitude? If our soldiers just kind of half-heartedly said, I'm going to kind of serve the nation depending on if I feel like it or not. Think about those in American history who've defied this oath. They've pledged the oath of allegiance, but they deserted. They walked away. Eddie Slovic is one of the most famous deserters in U.S. history. During World War II, he served in France in the 28th Infantry. And when the Germans were firing heavy artillery, he got scared and ran away. He deserted. He went AWOL for about a week. He showed back up to his platoon, 
they accepted him back if he was willing to go and continue to fight on the front lines. And he said, no, I'm not going to fight. I'm going to face court-martial. And they gave him the option. So he faced court-martial. And because he did not uphold his oath to fight for his country, he actually went to trial and he was executed in 1945. He was the first man executed since the Civil War and the last since. Now, Slovik was a soldier who pledged allegiance, swore this oath of allegiance to uphold the Constitution, to fight for his country, to not abandon when things got rough, and yet he walked away. He deserted. He called it quits. And he paid the price for it. He got executed for it. Now, this story of desertion may be pretty dramatic in U.S. history. And why do I draw your attention to soldiers deserting or walking away or giving up or not, not upholding their pledge? Well, we see this dramatically before us in John chapter 6, the latter half. Now, remember, this is a long chapter. What's been going on in this chapter? It's Passover. What is happening at Passover? Thousands of lambs are being slaughtered in the temple, and they are celebrating the Exodus, where God delivered Israel out of Egyptian slavery through the blood of a lamb. That's what they're celebrating. And they would eat the Passover meal. Now, we've done a Passover Seder here from time to time. You eat the matzah bread. You have the different cups of redemption. You have bread. You have wine. You eat a a Passover meal. That's what's going on right now. But what else is going on in chapter 6? Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's done this amazing miracle. But here's the problem. He is the true bread of life. He's the true Passover lamb. He's the one who's the lamb of God giving his life for the world. And yet, this crowd is not believing in him. This crowd only wants their selfish needs met because they received a free meal. And so, the backdrop of what we're seeing here is the Passover. Eating and drinking the bread and the wine the meal, the sacrifice. And what did we see a few weeks ago? What did Jesus teach us? These people weren't believing. Why weren't they believing? Because they weren't given by the Father to Jesus. Remember what Jesus said? All that the Father gives me will come to me. So if you've been given by the Father to Jesus, you will come. God will draw you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you come to Jesus, he will not cast you out. He will keep you to the end, and he will raise you up on the last day. You won't be lost. And as we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus is the bread of life, and he sovereignly ensures your salvation from first to last. Every step of the way, Jesus is guarding you. He's preserving you. He's making sure you're going to be saved to the very end if you truly come to him in faith. But Jesus is not done with his sermon Remember, he's teaching and preaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And so really, he's got four more issues that he wants to address before we close out chapter 6. And here's the main point of of this latter half of chapter 6. Here's the main point. As the bread of life, 
Jesus demands nothing less than a total trust and allegiance to him in faith. He will demand nothing less than total allegiance and faith. You know, at the 4th of July, we shoot off fireworks and we say the Pledge of Allegiance, which is a great thing to do. But this morning's message is, I pledge allegiance to the bread of life. Are you going to pledge your allegiance to Jesus? So let's look at four teachings on pledging allegiance to the bread of life. And here's teaching number one. Here's what Jesus is going to teach us. Remember, he's teaching this. This is, this is Jesus' words. This is red letter. This is what Jesus is teaching us. Here's number one. God uses the scriptures and the preaching of the gospel to draw us to the beauty of the cross. Now, we're going to see this in verses 45 through 51. So let's pick up in John 6. Verse, let's pick up in verse 44 and, and just keep reading through, through verse 51. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 44. No one can come to the Father. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. We looked at that a few weeks ago. So the question is, okay, how does God draw or how does the Holy Spirit bring people to Jesus? How does it happen? How does the Father draw us? Is it some type of mystical experience where you get zapped and you come like a zombie? Are you a puppet on a string with, no, with not even knowing what's going on here? How are you brought to Christ? Well, Jesus answers that for us in verses 45 and 46. He says, it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has learned or who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This means that we will be taught by God. We will learn from God. And the question then was, how does God teach us? How do we learn from God? Well, we learn from the Scriptures. This is a direct prophecy from Isaiah 54, 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. 
So here's how God draws us to himself. He draws us to himself through the preaching, through the teaching, through the reading, through the communicating of the scripture. So we are taught by God. That's why Bible preaching and teaching is so important in the life of this church. Here's what happens. When you are confronted with the word of God, when somebody teaches the word of God, when somebody preaches the word of God, when somebody shares the word of God, when somebody communicates to you the word of God, the Holy Spirit brings conviction into your mind into your heart. Your eyes begin to be open. You begin to understand the truth. You begin to understand that you're a sinner. You're in desperate need of salvation. You begin to look at the cross and see that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And then through that teaching, through that word, through that gospel, through the scriptures, God draws you to himself. That's why Bible preaching and teaching is so important. What does Paul say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. How are people brought to faith in Christ? The word. Whether it's from a pastor like me preaching from a platform, whether it's you talking to a person over coffee, whether it's with your next door neighbor over your fence, however it is that you open up your Bible and communicate the truth, that's how God draws people to himself so that people can hear and be taught by God. The sufficiency of Scripture. And it's all pointed to the cross. Look at verse 51. Jesus kind of implicitly mentions the cross here. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What's he talking about that? What's he giving for the life? What's he giving for the world? He's giving his flesh. What's he talking about there? He's talking about dying on the cross. I'm going to give my life on the cross as a sacrifice, as the true Passover lamb. I'm going to give my life as a sacrifice on the cross. And so for you to see the beauty of the cross, for you to understand the cross, for you to to make sense of the cross, you've got to have the scriptures taught to you. You've got to have God teach you through the scriptures. And when, when that happens, God draws you. He opens your eyes. You see the beauty of the cross. You see the horror of the cross. You see your, your need for the cross. You, you surrender yourself to Jesus who died for you on the cross. And that way, you've been taught by God. And what's going to happen? If you've been taught by God through his scriptures, the Holy Spirit has drawn you, what will happen? You will come. Back in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So one of the primary ways that God draws you so that you will come to Jesus is through the Scriptures, being taught by God through the Scriptures. That's why it's so important for you to be under sound teaching, sound preaching, and for you to share the gospel with others as well. So that's Jesus' teaching number one. Here's Jesus' teaching number two. Sorry about my speech. We got in last night at midnight on the plane. So I'm going on low octane this morning. So um, teaching number two. Jesus calls you to wholeheartedly take all of him as the true Passover lamb that was crucified. He calls you to take all of him. Wholeheartedly take all of him. Jesus. 
Now let's read some confusing language, and I hopefully I'll be able to explain it. Let's look at verses 52 through 59. This is a little confusing, but let me help us understand what Jesus is saying here. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I am him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. What in the world is going on here? What's Jesus saying here? Is Jesus being literal? Is Jesus saying we have to literally drink his blood and eat his flesh? What's Jesus doing here? Is this some veil description of the Lord's Supper? Is that what he's talking about? I don't think he's talking about the Lord's Supper here because the original audience would have no clue what the Lord's Supper is. It hasn't been instituted yet. Jesus will institute the Lord's Supper on the night he's betrayed, so they're not going to understand what he's talking about if he's talking about the Lord's Supper, eating of his flesh, drinking of his blood. What's he talking about? Well, let me give you some help. Let's think of all the words that Jesus has been using in John chapter 6 to refer to faith. Verse 29. Let's just go look at these. Verse 29. Jesus answered him, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. We must believe in Jesus. Okay, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So we must come to Jesus. We must believe in Jesus. In verse 40, it says, For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. Come to Jesus, believe in Jesus, look to Jesus. Again in verse 47 we have believing in Jesus. We've got this terminology. Come to Jesus, believe in Jesus, look upon Jesus. Now when He gets to eating and drinking His flesh and eating of His, of his body, it's just a metaphor for what He's been talking about all along. To receive him to believe in him to look upon him but jesus raises the ante he uses this powerful metaphor of eating and drinking because what does it invoke in your mind when you eat something and you drink something you don't just take a little taste you bring it all the way into your body you receive it all so what jesus is saying here in the Hebrew people here the jewish people would have understood this this idiom this language what jesus is really saying is listen Jews, that I've just fed 5,000 of you, you've got to completely embrace all of me. You've got to totally come to me, all or nothing. You've got to receive all of me. You, You might like the fact that I fed you. You might like the fact that you want to make me king. You might think that I'm a traveling miracle worker, but that's not the totality of who I am. If you're going to come to me in faith, you've got to take all of me. You've got to surrender your entire self 
to me. Notice what else he says there in verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drink my blood abides in me. This abiding language. You come to Jesus. You abide in Jesus. You surrender to Jesus. You take all of him. You pledge total allegiance to him. And what he's talking about is the cross. Again, what's going on? What is going on when Jesus is talking about this? People are eating the Passover meal. They're eating matzah bread. They're breaking the matzah bread. They're drinking the cup of redemption. Lambs are being sacrificed. So this whole imagery of eating and drinking and feasting, all this stuff's going on during Passover, and Jesus looks them straight in the eye and says, listen, all this stuff is going on around you in Jerusalem, but I'm the true Passover lamb. I'm the true bread of life. You need to come take all of me. Come receive all of me. I'm giving my life for you. I'm going to give my flesh for you on the cross. Receive all of me. Don't just try me on for size. Don't just see if you fit into my, into, if I can fit into your life. Jesus says, no, it's all of me. Remember this crowd. They were seeking Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They'd just been fed 5,000, probably 20,000 when you had women and children. And they were excited. We got a free meal. This guy's a, a holy man. Let's make him king. What are they thinking? Selfish. Selfish personal needs. I want my needs met. I want my prosperity. I want my best life now. Whatever you can give me, Jesus, I want it now. And Jesus says, listen, I'm not going to play that game. You've got to take all of me. And I need to have all of you surrendered to me. And so the question is, is this crowd truly eating and drinking of Jesus? In other words, are they truly having saving faith? Are they truly giving their entire life to Christ? Are they willing to take up their crosses and follow him no matter what? Are they willing to say, Jesus, I surrender all. I'm going to give my life to you. I'm going to follow you. I'm not going to play games. I don't just see you as a traveling miracle worker. I don't just see you as this guru. I give my entire life to all of you wholeheartedly. What's their response? Well, let's see their response. Here's the third thing we see. Teaching number three, the cost of following Jesus will offend many who will not totally pledge allegiance to him in faith. The cost is too high for many. As a matter of fact, the cost of following Jesus is not just too high, it actually will offend many. Let's see this unfold before our eyes. Let's look at verse 60 through 65. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, were, who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me and let us it is granted to him by the Father. Verse 60. This is a hard saying. 
And that word hard in the original language doesn't mean they couldn't figure it out. It's not like they're, they're, they're clueless. I don't understand what you're saying, Jesus. That's not what it's saying here. When they're saying this is a hard saying, they're saying this is not something I want to accept. I don't want to hear it. This is offensive. This is not something I want to follow. It's like Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces? They've been broken into pieces by the hammer of God's word. And they didn't like it. This is difficult. This is, this is too costly. This is too high of a cost of discipleship. I don't know if I want to follow all of you, Jesus. I like the free meal. I like that you can be my king. I like that you can be my guru. But to, to give myself totally to you, that's offensive. That's a stumbling block. I won't accept it. And Jesus calls him on it. Look at verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to him, do you take offense at this? The word offense in the Greek language is where we get a word scandal. Are you scandalized by this? This teaching of ultimate allegiance to Jesus was a scandal to them. It was a stumbling block to them. It's what 1 Peter 2, 7-8 tells us. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, we see the entire summary of this section poignantly summarized there in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Here's the question. If coming to Christ, totally surrendering to Christ, if giving your life to Christ is so offensive, so scandalous, so hard to accept, then why did you come? Why did you count the cost and come? Why did you pledge allegiance to Jesus and say, I'm going to follow you all the way, Jesus? Why did you do it? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. The Spirit gave you life. It's right there. Right there. In verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives the life. The flesh is no help at all. If you've come to Jesus, the Father has drawn you, how has he drawn you? He's drawn you through teaching you the scriptures. The Spirit has given you life. He's regenerated you. He's opened your eyes. He's made the cost look like it's nothing. You, you, you in your human nature look at following Jesus and say, that's, that's offensive, that's scandalous, I can't do it, I won't do it, I'm going to rebel against that. And then when the Holy Spirit invades your heart and gives you life, he liberates you, he takes the blinders off, and you look at that and say, I want Jesus now. I will come to Jesus now. I must have Christ now. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person, the lost person, person in the flesh, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? They're folly to him. They're foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The Spirit has to give life. Left to yourself, you will never follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit has to give you life. The Father has to draw you. Look down there at verse 65. Jesus says it again. This is why I told you that no one can come. You do not have the ability to come. You cannot come unless what happens? 
It is granted him by the Father. Granted. Now, when God calls you, when God teaches you, when the Spirit gives you life, are you going to come? Jesus says yes. Verse 37, all the Father gives me will come to me. Is God's word going to return void? No. Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So God will grant us the ability to come. There in verse 65. You can't come. Why can't you come? Because you're a sinner. You're unable to come. You're spiritually dead. You're spiritually depraved. God has to enable you to come. God has to grant you to come. And the language there is very specific. When it says, unless it is granted him by the Father, it's a, I don't want to bore you with a lot of Greek here, but it's a perfect passive verb, which means passive, you don't do it. You don't give yourself the ability to come. It's passive, God does it. And it's perfect in the perfect tense, which means that God strongly ensures it's going to happen. So God will bring you to faith when the Spirit gives life. Go back to verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. They will come. You will come. If you've been given by the Father, you will come. Why will you come? Because you've been given the Father. When will you come? When the Spirit gives you life. How will you come? Through the teaching of the Word. What's it going to look like? You're going to be drawn to the Father. You're going to come to Jesus. You're going to believe in Jesus. You're going to give your life to Jesus. You're going to pledge allegiance to Jesus. Now, what's the problem with this group of people? It's offensive. They don't like it. It's a stumbling block. The, the bar's too high, Jesus. Give me my miracle and I'll follow you. Give me a free meal every day and I'll follow you. Be a guru who is my life coach and I'll follow you. But don't dare, Jesus, ask me to take up my cross, follow you, and surrender my life to you, all of you. Let's see what happens. We will see the church shrinkage movement in just a moment. Not the church growth movement, but the church shrinkage movement. You ready? Here's teaching number four. Jesus does not lower the bar on the cost of following him, but reinforces the demand of total allegiance and trust in him. He's not going to lower the bar. Let's see how Jesus does not lower the bar. Here we go. Verse 66 through 71. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus turned around to the twelve and says, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, you may think, well, this is weird. They're disciples, but they turn their backs on Jesus. Look look at the text. Look at it right before your eyes. Verse 66. Many of his disciples turned back. Now, we don't know how many there were, but he just fed 5,000. There had been people that were gathered. He had large crowds. Let me tell you how the text literally reads. They went away to the things they had left behind. In other words, they went back to their lives. They went back to their pleasures. They went back to their merry lives and said, I'm no longer going to follow this man. 
The cost is too high. The demand is too high. Thank you very much, Jesus. Turn their back, desert, walk away. Did not pledge allegiance to the bread of life. They walked away. Now, what's amazing is Jesus doesn't chase after them and say, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait a minute. I didn't really mean it. I promise I'll perform another miracle. Just please don't walk away. You're going to make me look bad. I mean, I had a crowd of 5,000, and now I'm down to like 12, and and they're not going to write a very good article about me in the church growth magazine. I'm not going to win any awards for church growth. Please, I promise. I promise I'll, I'll lower the bar. Just don't walk away. Does Jesus do that? Jesus lets him walk. He lets him walk. And then to add insult to injury, what does he do? He turns to his disciples and gives them a chance to bail too. He turns to his disciples, okay, they've left. What about you guys? You guys, it's your chance. Here's your chance, guys. You can bail. If this is too high, if the cost is too high, if pledging allegiance to me is too much of a deal, here's your out. You can leave now. And what does Simon Peter say? It's his confession. It's John's version of his confession. What does he say? He says to them, you have the words of eternal life. Who are we going to go to? Who are we going to go to? Now, in one sermon, Jesus loses a huge crowd. He never once lowers the bar to get them back. He doesn't mince words. He's, he's not threatened by a mass exodus. Now, you may ask yourself, well, the Bible says these were disciples, and they walked away. Does this mean they lost their salvation? No. It means that they were never saved in the first place. They were stony ground hearers. Remember the parable Jesus told back in Matthew 13 about the four types of soils, the four types of ground? The second soil. Let me read to you Jesus' words and see if this, this describes this group of people here that were so excited about Jesus when they saw the miracles, but then when he raised the bar of discipleship, they walked away. Matthew 13, 20 through 21. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Hey, this is exciting. I I like it. This is joyful. Hey, I'm getting a free meal. I I like this Jesus guy, yet has no root in himself. He endures for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. There is no root, meaning there is no salvation. They got excited. They may have shown a spurious type of faith. They followed Jesus because of the miracles. They kind of liked the popularity of this traveling guru. They were excited. But when persecution, when tribulation, when the cost of discipleship is raised, they're like, no way. I'm bailing. And the reason they bailed is because they had no root. They had no true saving faith. But what does Peter say? Who are we going to go to? You have the words of eternal life. Matthew 16, 15 through 17, we find Matthew's version of this confession. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. It's interesting what, what Peter says here. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered, Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? What's that a confession of right there, just in his wording? He's confessing Jesus as Lord. 
master, ruler, to whom shall we go? And then notice what he says in verse 69. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, it sounds redundant. We have believed and we've come to know. Well, which one is it? Why, did, why can't Peter just say, we've believed in you, Jesus? Why does he add, we've believed and we've come to know? It's in another Greek tense that's very strong. And what Peter's saying is, we have solidly come to the conclusion that we believe that you who are you say you are, and we've settled it in our hearts, and we have pledged allegiance to you, and we're going to follow you all the way. It wasn't just this, hey, I got head knowledge of you, Jesus. I, I, I believe that you can do cool miracles. I believe you are a historical figure. It's no, we have pledged our entire lives to you, and we will follow you because you have the words of eternal life. We've been taught by God. We've been drawn by the Father. Why did the disciples stay and the crowd leave? Because they had been given by the Father to Jesus. And they were drawn by the Father to Jesus. They had been taught by the Father. The Spirit had given them life. And they came. And when they came, they stayed. If you truly come to faith in Christ, you will stay. There's an ominous ending to this passage of Scripture. We've got this mention of Judas. Judas was going to betray him. I chose all of you, but yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Why did Judas betray Jesus? He had not been given by the Father to Jesus. He had a false faith. Here's the thing about Judas. Everybody else bailed that day. Judas had the guts and duplicity to stay, even though he was faking it the whole time. He could have walked away at that point, but Judas stayed with Jesus in his heart of hearts, knowing that he was not receiving Christ. He was not believing in Christ. He he could have done what that crowd did. In his heart, he did what that crowd did. He walked away. He just was going through the motions the next couple years with Jesus until he betrayed him. So how do we summarize Jesus' teaching in this whole chapter? Two things. This whole chapter is about the bread of life. Number one, Jesus says the bread of life ensures your salvation from first to last. We saw that a few weeks ago. But from today's text, as the bread of life, Jesus sovereignly demands nothing less than your total allegiance, total commitment, no matter what the cost, to follow him. And it's got to be a faith that's an ongoing faith. Not a one-time decision. Not a false profession. Not, hey, I'm excited about Jesus and then go live however you want to live. Not a kind of faith that accepts Christ for a while and then you run off and do your own thing. If you are truly one of his, you will never fall away. From first to last. The Father in eternity past has given you to Jesus. At a point in time, the Holy Spirit gave you life. At a point in time, your eyes were open to the truth. 
At a point in time, you were drawn and you came to Jesus. And when you came to Jesus, he received you. He did not drive you out. You will never be lost. You will be raised on the last day. So if you were truly one of his, God will guarantee that you never fall away and that you endure to the very end with persevering faith. But here's the ultimate question for you today. There's two groups of people in this passage of Scripture. There's Peter and the true disciples who stayed and said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And there's the crowd that bailed. Which one are you? Are you one that's going to pledge allegiance to Jesus, totally surrendering your life to him in faith, no matter what the cost, and you're going to wholeheartedly follow Christ. You know the old song, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back, no turning back. Will you on this 4th of July weekend, you'll celebrate fireworks, you may even say the Pledge of Allegiance, but the most important thing is will you pledge allegiance to the bread of life? and give yourself totally to him and surrender your life totally to him in faith. No turning back. Let me ask you to bow your heads as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. And as we actually, we're not going to eat his flesh and drink his blood. That's not our theology. We're going to commemorate his broken body and commemorate his blood being shed in the taking of the Lord's Supper, but it's a reminder visually, tastes buttily, I don't even know how you say that. It's, Jesus has given us a visual picture of the gospel. And it's interesting that in the visual picture of the gospel, it's something that we eat. Have you ever thought about that? The Lord's Supper, you don't just look at it. I'm going to look at this bread. You don't listen to it You've already listened to a sermon. It's something that you put in your body. You drink it, and you swallow it. And it goes all the way down. And it's a reminder of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, but it's also a reminder of we are taking in all of him. We are receiving him. We are feasting upon him and his grace as the bread of life. So would you just spend a few moments in silent prayer as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper? Celebrate the death of your son, Jesus, would this be a true act of worship where we have joy in our hearts because of what Christ you have done for us? Would we receive grace afresh? Would we think about your sacrifice? And Lord, would you give us the grace and the, um, the desire to, to follow you no matter what? And when we fail... In that, we know there's forgiveness because of your death on the cross. We thank you, Jesus, for your love. It's in your name we pray. Amen.